With all the applications we learn about for machine learning, the National Institute of Mental Health's machine learning team is guiding researchers with the best practices for using the technology, particularly within the section on functional imaging methods. Leading this team is Francisco Pereira, who breaks down for us the intricacies of this technology and how it can be used as an aid in brain imaging to address research problems in clinical and cognitive neuroscience. Dr. Pereira, thank you for joining us on GovCast. You're very welcome. So you are a machine learning team lead at the National Institute of Mental Health. What exactly is your role? We do several different things, but I think the, the main one would be we help people at NIMH that want to analyze their data for whatever type of data sets that the scientists collect using machine learning methods or using a number of other techniques. We are not really that fanatical about it being just what's in our name. And the other part is we are also a machine learning research group and focus on trying to find situations where if we can develop a new method or a new approach to analyzing data, we allow people to ask different scientific questions that they couldn't ask before. We're really fortunate every time we find something like that because it means that we can do machine learning research and at the same time we can fulfill our core mission. So and our daily work is a mix of these two things. What got you interested in working with machine learning or working with some of these areas? I wish I had a, a nice principled path which showed my drive from a very early age, but it's not like that at all. And I started out as a computer scientist and then with an interest in artificial intelligence. And then I had the opportunity in grad school, because I was in a fairly interdisciplinary place, to start working with psychologists that did brain imaging. This also as part of understanding a bit more about how humans actually think. And so I thought a bit of psychology is not going to go amiss in, in trying to develop artificial intelligence, maybe. And at that point, I started working with psychologists uh, who did brain imaging, which is a pretty cool te technology. And I realized, oh, this is actually going to change everything in neuroscience, potentially. Okay, so what does it mean for imaging to be functional? So I think most people and your listeners will be familiar with, if at all, with imaging, with structural MRI. So this is just like the MRIs that people do to look at a muscle or at a particular bone or at the, the shape of the brain. And this technology has been around for a few decades. And what people found about 30 odd years ago, and my boss Peter Bentini was one of the researchers involved in this, normal MRI will give you a three-dimensional picture of whatever it is that you're looking at. And if it's a brain, then you'll see a three-dimensional picture of the brain. But if you tweak it in a certain way, this signal is actually affected by what happens as the brain functions. So as neurons consume oxygen, that changes the signal in a certain way. So imagine you're looking at a 3D brain and you see these tiny perturbations of about 1% to 5% of the signal caused by whether there's more activation or less activation in a certain part. And this, incredibly, actually reflects brain function via the consumption of oxygen that neurons use as they are working. This is a really coarse picture of this, but that's probably it. So functional MRI is just the use of MRI to capture the brain at work. And if people have seen images of this part of the brain lights up when you do this or that in the magazine, so that's sort of one use of functional MRI. It's not the only one because it's not like the brain's a little Christmas tree with these things lighting left and right. It's more that it's like a frothing cauldron of activation. And a lot of what we do is actually try to tease signal out of this that says something that we want to find is happening or not happening. Where does the artificial intelligence or automation 
component come into when you do these imaging? For these parts, not at all. So you can obtain these data sets with nothing that is intelligent in any way. But I mean, in this case, I would kind of also make the proviso that usually when people talk about artificial intelligence, it's because it's hard. Once it works, it gets packaged into a box and it's no longer intelligence. It just does what it's supposed to. Whereas machine learning would be things where you don't really know how something should be done. You're just teaching a computer to do it by showing it examples. Usually to produce these data sets, it's never the case that you have to do to use methods like those, with some exceptions. Most of what we do comes afterwards, is when there's these vast data sets collected, we have to deploy the methods to try to do something with the data. And it could be something as simple as saying, can we distinguish data sets that come from patients and controls in a particular condition? And you want to understand, say, if you're looking say, at brain function in a particular task, is it different for people who have a particular condition? And this by itself is not necessarily the most useful thing to do because it has to go together with trying to understand, to see if knowing that will tell you something useful in terms of how clinicians understand the disease. So it could be that, yes, if you know that there's something different in activity while you do, say, an emotion processing task, if you are depressed or if you are anxious, then that might allow people to say, oh, it's because this hypothesis we had about what goes wrong in this disorder, maybe one area does not inhibit the activity of another as much as we would expect. So if you have a known hypothesis, maybe it will help sort that out. Why is this in particular important in the overall picture of public health? What are some of the problems that this process is maybe solving or tackling? If I think public health, I think you already have something that's actionable. And there are policies that need to be drafted to use that knowledge in some way. I'm not sure a lot of what we work with is at that stage yet or has actionable consequences. And I think doing policy based on very preliminary findings is probably a bad idea to begin with. It's more at the stage where we are either helping people discover new things or we're helping them confirm things they already suspect are there. And then that's part of the process that will allow people to say, oh, we really know that having an intervention for this condition would be super helpful. And we do know that there are these kinds of patients. And now it's worth maybe recommending this guideline for public health, or it's worth putting funding into this specific question, because we know that that now it's a legitimate question, this phenomenon is there. And if we were to find it, we would be able to, it to be really useful. But that's something that happens on the funding side of things. Would you say this is an emerging technology? I know it's very early stages, as you just mentioned. And where do you see it going in the future? I think it's not emerging in the sense that suddenly it's been used left and right in tons of places and domains for different regions. I think we're at the point where it's emerging in the sense that, yes, people were able to do the simple things like trying to distinguish patients from controls in a variety of conditions and show that there's something there. And now we're kind of transitioning to the point where people would like to have that lead to more actionable knowledge. And so if you're able to distinguish patients from controls, it might be for a number of reasons. There's a lot of variability across people, so if you see something, you'd have to see it reproduced many times and see the same difference appear in many different independent samples to think that effectively it's there. So once you know that it's there, though, you start being able to do other things, such as maybe you could do screening 
and say in something like uh, someone has mild cognitive impairment, in the case say, of Alzheimer's, you can distinguish patients from controls very easily, and we've known that for a long time. But that's not really helpful because by the point you know that someone has Alzheimer's, a lot has gone wrong. But maybe if you're at the point where someone has mild cognitive impairment and you could say, oh, this person is going to convert to Alzheimer's down the road and this other person is not, you are at the stage where, well, you can scan them and if you know this is going to be the case and you'd need really, really good precision to be able to know that, to be able to use this, you could say, assign the person to a clinical trial early on. So that'd be a sort of one instance of where having that knowledge is helpful. And it's only now that people have large enough data sets that you can start thinking about that. So in that sense, it is emerging. But you can't really collect really large data sets until you know what you're scanning for, because otherwise it would be a vast waste of money. So you got your undergraduate degree, you mentioned earlier, in computer science. And actually, you're from Portugal. What changes have you seen over that time in this area? Thinking back just over the past 10 years, technology has changed so rapidly. What do you think have been the most stark differences? Well, the thing that strikes me the most is, is coming out of grad school. There were many companies that would tell me, oh, there's no situation in which we would use machine learning. And we have no use for that. So we can hire you as, as a software engineer, whereas now it's kind of the opposite. Probably not look at people that did not have machine learning training in many, in many settings. Thinking back over your career, why do you think this technology in particular, why is it important to you? What makes you passionate about it? No, I think it's a, it's a possibility that we can help people do science better. And by this, I mean that just by virtue of talking to them and understanding what is the thing that they would really like to know, we can come up with a way of using their data or their data together with somebody else's data to try to answer that question. So every little effort has greater implications in public health, which is furthering NIH's mission, really. But I think ideally is if it means that you can take, collect the same amount of data that you would you do anyway and answer very different questions or relate to other data sets, I mean, all of that to us is, that really is part of our mission, is if you can do a lot more with the same data sets that you have collected anyway, then it means that we've done what we're here to do. So can you go into a little more about the challenges that come with this field? You've touched on them a little bit already in terms of we have so much data, there isn't really a way to make 100% use of all that data. I mean, there's so many things you can do with it. So you're part of what you're doing is trying to uncover the ways in which you can do that. So what are some of the challenges that come in with this? If we just stick to the data for the moment, it's actually two contradictory ones. Often people will assume that there's a lot of data out there. And there isn't. In part, because it's sort of a ten fundamental tension between you want to run innovative experiments and you're going to do something new. You're not going to do it in hundreds of people because that costs a lot of money. You're going to do a relatively small study. You maybe find where maybe you think that this, a particular type of task would be extremely revealing about some aspect of mental function that might be disordered on a person. And you want to see if that's the case. And you make them do this on the scanner and but you're not going to do this for tons of people. So in that case, uh, if we want to see what's different between patients and controls for that task, the methods you can use are really, really limited because there's really nothing, you'd be looking at only a relatively small number of data points. But that's often the situation we're in. 
So challenge one would be how to bring in additional information to make it possible to produce something more insightful out of the data. And maybe it comes out of behavior. So now if we know from just looking at psychological assessments you give to the same patients that they cluster into several different groups, then that allows you to separate the imaging data into various parts. And maybe now you can actually say, oh, this variability that would make it very complicated to distinguish patients from controls disappears when you can split things further. So that sort of will be one challenge, is how to bring in additional information in small data settings. The other one would be, if you have giant data sets, you want to extract some information such as, and people have done this for things like looking at the scans and predicting the age of a person. This is kind of the ultimate example of, yes, you're not going to put people in the scanner to, to find out their age because you can always ask them. And there's lots of other ways to find out. But it's something where if you have the ability to look at structural imaging or functional imaging and predict age or predict some trait of the person, then in principle, that should tell you a lot about what of those characteristics has information. And in the case of the age, it might even be diagnostic because if you scan someone and the model thinks they're older than they actually are, then that might indicate some process of degeneration taking place. But then you have the opposite problem is you have this magic box that can actually produce this prediction and it might even be able to tell you how uncertain it is about it. But then you have to understand how on earth does it find the information because that's really what would help a clinician think of what use that information is. So maybe it's useful as a diagnostic test if we know that it's this particular brain structure that's sh shrinking that's really diagnostic. And maybe you have no problem with shrinking all over the place, but once it shrinks here, that's really, really bad. And maybe something contextual, like if it shrinks at age 80, that's maybe aging. If it shrinks at age 40, it might be an indication of something else. The general name for this area is explainable AI. How is scientific practice changing in how people collect data? That's a very good question. Because in I think the traditional image that people will have, and this has been the case in general, is you collect, if it's brain imaging experiment, data on a few tens of people. They might all be just healthy participants. If you want to study a certain brain function, this would be a typical cognitive neuroscience study. It might be uh, patients and controls. And that has the problems we already talked about in terms of there's maybe many reasons why patients and controls could differ. But now people are realizing that this limits a little bit of what we can ask. And it also means that people might have more questions down the line scientifically that are not being captured by the existing studies. And so you kind of want studies to be larger and more prospective in nature. In addition to funding these small studies that you, you have to keep funding, in particular in the case of NAMH, the funding has also shifted to something like the ABCD study that looks at adolescent brain development. And in this case, it's a consortium of several different sites, all of which scan kids coming in and also collect a lot of other information, psychological, genetic, etc., from them. And they scan them doing a variety of tasks. They scan this brain at idle, they scan brain structure, and they will do this importantly over many years. So what you get is first a really large data set where people are doing a variety of things. Then you can see them over time. So if you're interested in questions of brain development, which is one of the main purposes of collecting this data set, you can do. 
but also importantly is over time things will unfortunately happen to participants because a lot of these disorders manifest first in adolescence but what this gives you is the ability to say not only collect data where the kids have this particular problem or some mental issue but you might be able to ask the question could you tell that this was going to happen x years before could you tell something about the triggers could you say the ones that had this type of environment and this brain makeup ended up having it and the ones that had a better environment did not and there are more and more data sets like that and the beauty of that is that also because these data sets are larger we are able to use much more sophisticated methods than we we could otherwise or in some cases we can build models say of what normal brain would look like at various ages for something we're interested in which means that then when we look at a smaller sample we have a better handle on what the sources of variability actually are so we're able to do more with the small samples that we have and do you see funding changes coming in the imaging realm at the agency in a way that they already have so there's a, a general push that involves many different funding agencies so not just NIH but also the NSF or DARPA called the brain initiative that funded work on many many areas of neuroscience but can't really get into too much detail about this but one of the things that was really cool is that a few years ago it funded lots of small pilot efforts on many different technologies for brain sensing and for brain intervention and this is not just in humans but also in animal models uh, with the idea being that we've had the current technologies we have magnetic resonance imaging or electroencephalography or uh, magnetoencephalography for decades and they've led to a revolution in the understanding of the brain and then the idea is if we had anything that's as impactful as those but also gives us the ability to start modulating the brain then we might be able to get to the point where we can both detect many more things than we could before but also intervene on the knowledge that we gain so i think that many of those things were developed relatively recently so you're not yet seeing them in current practice but those technologies will come and so part of what we we are doing now is trying to think of what technical developments do we need uh, when those things become mainstream or they become available hence the idea of trying to say can we explain exactly what is happening that has information on someone's brain about a particular trait or condition so that then we can start thinking when we have the ability to intervene can we have a description of what we really should be intervening on what are some of the qualities that researchers or maybe even some of the people on your team should have in coming to work with these and and tackling some of these issues it's a tricky profile so i'm really fortunate with, with the people in my team in that they are both technically excellent but they also all love the process of sitting with someone and helping them figure out how they might tackle the problem that they have it's not saying that people need to all have this because that's not the case and i don't want to really blame anyone for not having it but for working in this setting you kind of have to love that part as much as you love the technical component because that's what means that uh, we are happy helping them solve their problem even if what they need is a very trivial solution and then when we're really lucky and there's a problem that calls for a juicy new method then we can just pounce and try to we get a chance to work on that and sort of use our technical chops to actually solve it 
but you kind of need both parts. So looking ahead into the future, maybe over the next five to 10 years, where do you see technology like machine learning or maybe even beyond that? Where do you see it? Not necessarily cure, but recognize it better, helping some mental illnesses. Yeah, I think we're still at the stage where we're helping people conceptualize better what's happening in the disorders, which is sort of the first step you need in order to decide what else you need to look into to help them. So, but once we know that there's additional information that we can get from a variety of brain imaging or other pieces of information which allow us to say group people, then you start getting into what are the techniques for intervention. If you think about other more practical things is people have already tried to transform certain types of therapy into something you could put into an app, in particular cognitive behavior therapy, because those are situations where patients can do a lot of work on their own. And maybe what they need is the ability to be reminded of certain things or go through certain thought patterns. And that's a situation where in order for this to be effective, you might do better if the patient can also not just interact with an app that's telling them something and pressing the multiple choice thing, but maybe you would like to be able to talk briefly with the app and the app can respond to you. I mean, this does not replace a therapist, but it means that you can have the ability to have some of the interactions that are fairly well scripted on your own, on your own time, or even have the app say, this is be a great time to try to call your therapist because you really need help now. A lot of this would, again, use machine learning. Where do you see your role or the applications of your work taking you in your next life, if there is one? <laughs> I kind of like the life I have right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I've, I've also been a postdoc in the Neuroscience Institute after this grad school, and I learned to run my own experiments. And I have an interest in certain scientific topics in cognitive neuroscience. And I've also been in industry for six years. So if I kind of have to think about all the things I've done and the one I like the most, this is by far the one I like the most. In between the fun we have in doing method development and trying to dissect people's questions and also mentoring all these junior researchers, you really get exposed to almost everything that anyone is trying to do. Well, thank you so much. It was great to have you. Thank um, you. This was interesting. Being someone who's not technical or involved in the health aspects of things to that detail it's been interesting hearing about all the things that you're working on and taking a look into the behind the scenes aspect of some of these technologies in a setting like NIH, which is so large in government. So thank you. This was great. Thank you. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you hear, let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Governmentcio.com.